Heavenly Father, we thank you that the word that is before us this morning is God-breathed, that it is from you yourself. It is from the Holy Spirit speaking through the mouths of men of old. And Lord, we thank you that we know that this word that is before us this morning is infallible and inerrant, that there is no error, there is no falsehood here. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what it has to say to us today. We pray that it may give us joy and delight in yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've come yet again to the book of Hosea. We've been working through it together. And we are in chapter 11. Last week we looked at verses 1 through to 4 of Hosea 11. And we have been seeing again and again in this book that Israel has sinned grievously against God. And God is seeking to awaken Israel to how terrible their sin is and how fearful the judgment is that will come upon them because of their sin. And he continues to threaten judgment after verse 4 of Hosea chapter 11. That's in verse 5 through to verse 7. Verse 5 through to verse 7, which is found on page 896 of the Black Church Bibles there. Verse 5, it says, Will they, that's Israel, not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Sword will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. If they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. God is using very strong language here to speak of the judgment that is to come and how terrible the sin is of the Israelites. Verse 7 there we saw, it says, Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. Israel should be fearful of the judgment that is to come. But even in the midst of such anger and terrible judgment, we see as we look on in Hosea chapter 11 that God changes his mind about the judgment that he is bringing upon Israel. We read in verse 8 that he cannot give his people up. He starts to talk to himself. Verse 8, it says, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I give you up, hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboiah? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. He's saying, how can I give up Israel? Remember what he said at the beginning of chapter 11, that Israel is a child of his, that Israel is not just some other people, but they belong to him in a special way. And at the beginning of the book, we saw that God sees Israel as his wife, not just a child, but even his wife, who he's made covenantal vows to. And so he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I give you up? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I treat you as an enemy? Which is what he's saying in verse 8 where he says, How can I treat you like Admon? How can I make you like Zeboiim? What are the places, Admar and Zeboiim? Well, they were cities that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't read of them in Genesis being destroyed, but in Deuteronomy there is mention made that When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, those wicked cities, which you can read about in Genesis chapter 19, he also destroyed the towns of Zeboiim and Admah. And God looks at Israel and says, I can't treat you like those cities. I can't treat you like an enemy. How can I give you up? And instead, his compassion is warmed towards Israel. 
That's what it says there in verse 8. It says, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused or warmed would be another way to translate the word aroused there. So just as God is very warm with his anger, at the same time, something else is warm in the heart of God. What is that? It's his compassion. As he looks at his children and speaks of terrible judgment upon them, at the same time, his heart is moved with compassion towards his people so that he will not carry out his fierce anger, as it says in verse 9. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. God will not bring his fierce anger upon Israel in the way that he has described before, where he will utterly wipe, wipe them out and will, even if they call to him, he will by no means exalt them. No, his compassion is warmed at this time as he looks upon Israel. And so what does he say he will do? Well, in verse 10 we read, it says, They, that's Israel, will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. He will be a lion that roars, that would strike fear into enemy. But... For his people, they will follow after him as he roars like a lion. As lion cubs following the cry of their parent, Israel will follow after the Lord as he roars because his roar will be a roar of love and protection, not a roar that should strike fear into the hearts of his people because he will not treat them as an enemy. And so then Israel, what will they do? Well, we read in verse 11 what they will do. It says, They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. There's quite a contrast between what we've been seeing in other parts of Hosea, where God speaks of his judgment, and even in chapter 11 there, where in verse 6 we saw that swords would flash in their cities and will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. You see that in verse 6, but then down in verse 11 you see that Israel will come back. They'll come back as birds trembling and be received into their homes, that the Lord will settle them again where they dwell. And today God still responds to the sin of his children, the church, the Christian church, in the same way. The message is still the same for his people. If you have sinned against your father, you should rightly be grieved about your sin. It is terrible to sin against your father in heaven, to sin against your spouse, God himself, to sin against your creator. And God is rightly angry with you because of your sin. You're supposed to be obedient children. You're supposed to be a faithful spouse. And his anger is indeed something that is fearsome to behold. But we should know from Hosea that when God's anger is warmed against us, that his compassion is also warmed for his children. As he looks at his kids, he has a warmth that dwells in his heart towards them as well. They are not like his enemies. They are his children. This is his spouse that he is looking at when we sin. And his compassion is there as well. Now, how is it possible that God can forgive you despite the awful sin that you've committed against your father, against your spouse? Why can God sweep away our sin when it is so grievous? If we examine our sin and understand how sinful our sin is, the exceeding sinfulness of sin, if we understand how terrible it is what we have done against God, how can God have compassion towards us? Well, the text actually tells us what does it say in verse 9? 
I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. Why does God have compassion for his people despite the sin? I mean, we've seen again and again in Hosea how terrible the sin of the Israelites was. They worshipped other gods. They committed all kinds of acts of prostitution and idolatry throughout the land of wickedness and violence. Why does God forgive them? Because he is God and not man. He is holy. What does it mean that he is holy, as it says there in verse 9, that he is holy? Why is that a justification for why God would show compassion? Well, it's because holiness means other. It means that you are different from others. So if something is holy, then you dedicate it. It's different from everything else. And God is holy because he is so other from us, from humanity. He is very different from humanity. And so God's holiness is shown in the way that he shows compassion to sinners. When we look at humanity... We do not forgive the sin of others very easily. You may think you're very forgiving until someone does something against you. And you see this even from a young age. Children struggle to forgive one another for the slightest wrong. One of the things that I've often noticed with children is that they they get offended even by someone looking at them. So-and-so's looking at me. And I say, is that an offence, really? I say, it's not that big a deal. And if it is a big deal, can't you forgive them for looking at you? Maybe they like you. Maybe they think you're cute. But no, it's a big offence. So-and-so is looking at me, and I can't forgive that. That's humanity. We can't forgive people, even for the slightest wrong. And adults do the same as well. I remember reading a few uh, years ago in a newspaper article about uh, an act of road rage that happened. So someone... Someone had driven a car into another person and these two men got out of their cars and were speaking about the accident and it said one of the men bit the tip off the middle finger of the other man. Now, why the middle finger off the other man? I think you can start to work out what had happened. They had had an accident. They were both obviously well enough to get out of their cars and to speak, and so it wasn't a big deal, the accident. No one died. No one got seriously injured. They're both outside their vehicles. They're both talking to one another, and one of them made a gesture of some sort to the other person, and it was so terrible that that person would put their finger up in that particular way that he just couldn't think of anything other to do than to bite that man's finger. He bit it off, the tip of his finger. That is humanity. We can't forgive the smallest offences easily, let alone terrible offences that people do against us. When someone hurts you in a grievous way, let's consider if it's a son or a daughter or a spouse that has sinned against you in an awful manner. How easy is it for you to forgive that person? How easy is it for compassion to be warmed in your heart towards that person when they've been awful to you? And not only once, they've done it again and again and again. If we consider our sin against God, it's a grievous sin, it's terrible sin, but it's not just one sin. We sin against God repeatedly. He forgives us one day for something that we've done. And what do you do the very next day? You're going to him and asking for forgiveness again. And then the day after that, you're asking for forgiveness again. And again and again and again throughout your life, you sin repeatedly against God. 
Now, consider all the sin that you've committed against God. If you had done it to a person, another human being, would they forgive you? Is there anyone on this planet who could forgive you for all that you've done against God if it was directed at them? It's not possible. I don't know anyone that has a heart that big. And Hosea tells us that no one has a heart that big. When he says in verse 9, I will not carry out my fierce anger, this is God speaking, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man the Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. God is very different from us. How? Because he can actually show compassion to sinners who are awful to him. His compassion is still warmed towards his children despite their repeated sin. His compassion is still warm to his unfaithful spouse who is repeatedly unfaithful to him. He continues to be warm to his spouse. And so we understand that God is forgiving towards his people, despite their grievous sin. And he does it by the cross. By the cross where Jesus Christ gave his life, his compassion is shown. And God roars from the cross that there is still forgiveness for sin for his children. We read from John 19, one of the most tremendous statements made from the cross by Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say in John 19? He said, it is finished. Sin is atoned for. His people are granted full forgiveness. And that is a roar that is made by God. The Lion of Judah hanging there on the cross roars out, It is finished. And that roar does strike fear into the enemies of God, particularly the old enemy of God, Satan himself, the great accuser. Because what is the great accuser always saying about us? Accusers us night and day before God, look at these people, they continue to sin against you, how can you take them into glory? Look at your people, look at your spouse, look at the way they behave. You cannot take them into glory, you cannot reward them, they have to be punished. But what does Jesus say? What does he roar from the cross? It is finished, which strikes fear into the heart of Satan. It undermines all his plans for humanity. But that same roar, it may strike fear into Satan's heart, but it strikes comfort into the hearts of his people, into the hearts of his children, into the heart of his spouse. Because it means that despite your sin, God forgives it. God is God and not a man. And he grants forgiveness to his children even when they sin against him most grievously. So have you sinned in such a way that you feel that you cannot return to God? Maybe even in this last week. Have you done something? that afterwards you felt awful about? 
You felt rightly sick for what you'd done. You felt ashamed. You were grieving over it, mourning even now about it. You've come to church this morning and you feel you really shouldn't be here because you have sinned against God in a particular way that has sprung out and that has come up above all other sins that you've committed over this last week. There's one thing in particular that you are mourning over. Or maybe it was a few months ago and you still have pangs of guilt about it and feel you cannot go to God and you're still fearful of the consequences of that sin. We've seen again and again in Hosea that God brings consequences for sin. And you're fearful even now of what God may do to you because of your sin. One of the things I feel whenever I sin in a grievous way against God, I fear immediately his judgment upon me, and particularly when I go to preach on Sunday morning. Apostle Paul instructs Timothy to watch his life and doctrine closely. Not just his doctrine, but his life as well. And I know that my life is caught up with my preaching efforts. I know that if I seek to stand up here this morning and preach about sin and judgment, and all the time I know about my own sin, I'm a hypocrite. And how will God bless my efforts on Sunday morning if I go and sin against him through the week? How can I stand there and speak on his behalf when I know how much I've sinned against him through the week? And so a fear jumps into my heart immediately after the sin, and I think, oh, how could I do that? And what's going to happen? But do you realise, as you consider your sin, and maybe something in particular, that God's roar can sweep away even the worst of fears, even the worst of sickness and shame over sin, the grieving, the mourning. He sweeps it away because of what is in his heart. As you understand what is in his heart and the roar that comes out of his mouth, you can have even the most terrible of sins swept away and return to him. Hosea gives us this lovely little glimpse into the heart of God here this morning to see God's compassion there. And Jesus Christ gives us a massive look into it. He's trying to work out how best to compare the two. Hosea, a little look here in verse, uh, verses 8 and 9. And then Christ, as we look at the cross and see the love of God there, the heart of God displayed at the cross, how big a difference it is. Maybe like comparing an X-ray of the heart and an MRI of the heart. If you don't know much about nuclear imaging, um, uh, then you, you wouldn't really understand somewhat. But I think most of us understand an X-ray is really good for bones. You can see bones really well. But heart is soft tissue. And you can still get an X-ray of your heart and you can see some things there. And so you can understand something of the heart as a result of an x-ray. And that's what Hosea is like. But an MRI gives great detail to soft tissue. You can see all kinds of things about the heart. They can slice it up in all different ways and you can see right into the heart itself. And that's what Jesus Christ is like. He's an MRI of the heart of God. And when you look into the heart of God with Hosea, you get a little glimpse and then with Jesus, you get this massive look into him, into God's heart. What do you see there right alongside his justice? You see his compassion. You see his love. 
You see his mercy and his grace. Wonderful teaching in the New Testament. God is love. That's what's in his heart. Yes, he is warmed in anger against sin, but he's also warmed in love and affection towards his children as well, which means that despite the most grievous sin you may have committed in this last week or a few months ago or a few years ago, and that still troubles you today, you can settle down with God once more. If you return to him as one of, your children, as one of his children, if you come to him in faith, then you can indeed return to him despite your sin. So don't delay. I'm encouraging you this morning, don't delay. If you feel that you cannot return to God because of something you've done, that there's something between you and God that is impeding your relationship with him, God roars the gospel to you now, that there is full forgiveness of all sin because it is finished was bellowed from the cross through Jesus Christ. And so you don't have to delay. You can fly like a bird to God. That is the image that is given to us in verse 11 of the Israelites. When God roars, what do the Israelites do? Verse 11 says, They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. If you fly like a bird, what does that mean? Well, it means you can overcome large obstacles quite easily. We talk about uh, as the crow flies for distance between two points. And as the crow flies means that it's the shortest possible distance, that it doesn't matter how many houses are in the way or how many bodies of water or how many mountains, that as the crow flies, you can get there very, very quickly. Whereas if we hop in a car, we may have to go around the bodies of water, around the mountain or around the, the buildings that are built there. But a bird can travel quickly over whatever's in the way because it flies. And if we fly like a bird, it means we can travel very quickly across long distances. We can move with great speed. Flying is one of the fastest ways to travel. And the illustration given here in the Bible would have been picking on birds because the motor car hadn't been invented at this stage. And so flying, you look up at the birds and you see that they move very quickly. And we understand that doves, or if we look at pigeons, which is part of the same family of birds as doves are, that they are known to be quite fast. They were used for communication at times as homing pigeons. And the Encyclopedia Britannica speaks of pigeons have been known to fly several thousand miles, long distances, in returning home. And some have attained average speeds. Now, this is average speeds of more than 90 miles per hour, which is 145 kilometres an hour. Average speed for a pigeon, for some pigeons, is 145 kilometres an hour. Now, I've never actually done 145 kilometres in my car. The speed limit is 110. Um, so I haven't gone much over that uh, without uh, intention. And sometimes you don't do things uh, without noticing, and so you do go a little bit faster. But 145 k's I haven't done. But that's an average speed for some of these pigeons. Now, it's not as fast as uh, some birds. The peregrine falcon, apparently in its dive, it can do 320 kilometres an hour as it's diving from the sky. Watch out if you're the thing that it's diving towards. Uh, 320 kilometres. Birds can move very quickly over long distances. And the illustration there, then, therefore, is perfectly apt for God's people. 
It doesn't matter how big the sin is. If you're a bird, you can fly over the top of that. It doesn't matter how big the mountain may be. For a bird, it just flies right on over. It doesn't matter how big the body of water is, it flies over it. And that's what we do when we fly back to God. God roars and we fly. It doesn't matter what the sin was. You may be sick about what the sin was that you committed last week or a few months ago. But you can fly right over it because God roars for you to come home. And you can come back quickly. It doesn't matter how far you've gone from God, how far you've drifted, how far you've backslidden. If he roars and you fly like a bird, you can return very fast over a long distance. So I encourage you this morning, fly, 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 fly as fast as a bird to God as he roars his love to you. God roars, you fly back to him. You fly back trembling, it says there in verse 11, which may be the case. You tremble like a bird because of the pain you have caused God in your sin. You tremble because you know how foolish you have been in sinning against God. You tremble because you realise the roar should be one of terror that God is roaring, but instead it's a roar of love towards you. And maybe you tremble as you fly back because you can't believe how good God is, that he's showing mercy to you. You may come back trembling, as it says there in verse 11, but you do come back, and you come back to a home under God's wings. You may be trembling there under God's wings, but his compassion has been aroused, and you are welcome home through Jesus Christ. So I encourage you, if there has been anything that you have done against God and you feel you cannot return to him, Look at Hosea 11 and see God's compassion, see his roar and fly home to him. And encourage others to fly to God as well. It's all too easy to hold people to a higher standard than you hold for yourself. That you think that there are some sins that other people have committed that means that they cannot fly to God, that they cannot come to him. Now remember that God's forgiveness is far greater than any forgiveness you can ever muster for someone. And you're thinking like a man if you think that there's something that can get in the way between God and someone who trusts in him. There are examples of this all the time. And one example in the Bible is the example of King David, where he committed terrible sin and with Bathsheba, murdered Bathsheba's uh, husband, Uriah the Hittite. And then Nathan the prophet comes to him with this little scenario about a shepherd and a king taking one of the sheep of that shepherd. And David thinks it's terrible and the man must die for doing that. How could that happen? And yet he hasn't looked at his own heart and how terrible he is. We so often will hold people to a higher standard than God holds them. And so we must remember that God is not a man. God is full of compassion. And his compassion is therefore far greater than you can imagine. 
So I want you to consider this morning, are you encouraging yourself to fly to God? Or are you thinking like a man and telling yourself to stay away, that your sin is too terrible to go back to God? I had someone tell me that just two weeks ago, say, there's no way I can go to God. It just seems wrong for me to go to him and ask for forgiveness, that it's that easy. He's thinking like a man. He's thinking that I can't be experiencing God's compassion. He doesn't understand how great God is, how holy God is, how other, how different God is in his compassion. And so he can go to God and experience forgiveness. Are you holding yourself back from God because of sin and not flying to him? Or are you even encouraging others to stay away? You may feel, yes, I'm welcome back to God, but you're telling others to stay away. There's some people you'd rather weren't in heaven. They're they're terrible sinners. I'm not that bad. Their sin is heinous. It's awful. They don't deserve God's compassion. They don't deserve to fly back to God. Encourage all people that no matter what they've done against the living God, if they trust in Christ, they can fly to him. They can come trembling, that's okay, but shelter again under God's arms. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him. Heavenly Father, it is so marvellous to have this reminder from your word that you are God and not man. You are the Holy One and you will not come in wrath to your people. That the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for the roar of the cross, that it is finished. And so we can fly like birds. We can come trembling, but we come quickly. We can cover any sin, overcome any obstacle. No matter how far we've drifted from you, we can return rapidly because of your roar through the Lion of Judah at the cross. And so, Lord, we pray that we would come to you now. Pray that you would forgive our sins, even sins that we find hard to understand that they could be forgiven, sins that we've committed even in this last week, where you've been so good to us and then we've done something so grievous towards you. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would know that we can still return to you, that you roar your love towards us, that you cannot give us up, you can't hand us over, you can't treat us like your enemy. When we are your children, we are your spouse. So Lord, we pray that we would also encourage others, people who've never returned to you, who've never been under your arms, under your wings. Oh Lord, we pray that they would understand that if they trust in Jesus Christ, they are your children and your compassion is aroused for them. And they can come trembling to you and find forgiveness of sins. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.